0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Canadian Psychological Association's podcast marking Suicide Prevention Day, September 10th. Check the show notes for resources, websites, and phone numbers to call if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications specialist at the CPA. And my guest today is an expert on suicide in Canada. He co-wrote the CPA's fact sheet on suicide and with the Canadian Psychiatric Association, among other agencies, wrote the guidelines Canadian media use to this day when it comes to reporting on suicide.
1: Hi, I'm Marnon Heisel. I'm a clinical psychologist and a faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry and of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Western University in London, Ontario.
0: And you are the person I wanted to talk about, uh, talk with about suicide in this time and certainly in the time of the pandemic. So that's gonna be the first thing that we talk about. COVID-19 okay. and suicide, is there an actual connection between the one and the other?
1: Well, you know, that's that's an excellent question. I, and, and I don't say that to be evasive. I say it because on the one hand, certainly uh, there there is a connection. Certainly for some people, certainly uh, we're seeing it in healthcare. care. Um, in terms of an overall or national impact or major impact, uh, the jury's still somewhat out on that. So uh, in terms of the former, there have already been over the last couple of months, articles have been circulating online, articles in publishing or in pre-publication mode, um, giving examples, specific examples of individuals who either were diagnosed with COVID, who were afraid that they were diagnosed, or who were afraid that they had COVID, or who were afraid that they might get COVID, uh, ending their life. And we've seen that actually around the world. There have been cases in Italy and elsewhere in Europe, in Asia, and in India, in the United States, et cetera. Um, in some cases, again, the people involved were not, in fact, diagnosed as COVID positive, hear that they might be or suspected that they might be, were overwhelmed by that, terrified with that, afraid of becoming infected, of infecting others. And in some cases, people were uh, shunned by communities or felt that they were being shunned or avoided by people uh, because they were believed to possibly have COVID because of a cold, respiratory infection, that sort of thing. So certainly for some individuals, there is a strong connection, and some, some people have tragically lost their life as a result of it. Looking at some of the, uh, at the literature, uh, so I was part of a large uh, um, group of researchers who conducted a systematic review looking at uh, the literature on epidemics, pandemics, and suicide, going back to the Spanish flu, if not even a little bit earlier, Um, And and without uh, sort of giving away our findings, um, we did find, and we were familiar with some of the articles, uh, showing an increase in risk for suicide among older adults, uh, especially in Hong Kong following the SARS pandemic. Um, And and, and in fact, that's something that the literature has shown, that there are some examples, uh, certainly with the Spanish flu, there seemed to be an increase in the suicide rate uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. With SARS, there was an increase, especially for older adults. Um, The important thing to know, or or one of the important things, is to think about some of the processes or mechanisms that could be involved. And part of it certainly is fear, fear of becoming infected, fear of passing on COVID, uh, fear of what the implications of it are. But there are a number of other factors that likely also play a role
0: uh and social i think isolation oh sorry go ahead oh yeah ahead. no i i just think you know we've been talking about covid specifically in this time or a pandemic sure. specifically but this is so much more than that right it will enhance social isolation and uh people are losing their livelihoods and all kinds of other factors uh, that may not have existed with other pandemics in the past right and so it, when you say exactly. older adults i'm immediately thinking social isolation being uh one of the big factors in that
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Social isolation um, is certainly uh, loneliness, also key factors um, as well. Uh, And and, and you're absolutely right about uh, unemployment, loss of income, that has also had a a major impact on people. And in fact, I've seen some models suggesting that if this continues to rise, we might very well see increases in the rate. Um, However, the other thing to, to bear in mind is that this can impact um, people who are on fixed incomes or who are retired and uh live off of retirement income given the uh the stock market crash given the continued volatility in in the financial markets uh those are other concerns so so certainly fear is a big part of it social isolation um the, the sense of the unknown one of the things i've been hearing uh from people Uh, There seem to be waves of people sort of becoming used to this and this quote-unquote new normal, a term that we've heard far too much uh, of late. Right. Uh, But then after a while, the stress just builds up a little bit too much, and it sort of bursts out for a while, and then people are able to sort of gather themselves and collect themselves again, uh, and hopefully in the meantime haven't haven't engaged in in self-harm behavior. So the, the... Certainly, I, I would say, again, that the jury is out looking at national-level data. And, of course, there's always going to be some delay in being able to get the national-level data to see what's happening at, at larger population level. Elsewhere in the world where they might have quicker access to those data, we might see more of a sense of, of, of the broad impact. But certainly at the individual level, um, it, it can have an impact, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the good news, of course, is that there are services available, and uh, mental health providers, social service uh, workers, like just about every other field out there, have rapidly moved online and have continued to expand online sources of support to be able to, uh, to mitigate some of that.
0: And those are certainly services that uh, people should be taking advantage of if uh, you know, they are feeling that way. Uh, Now, you you mentioned, you know, several anecdotal cases, right? Uh, People Mm who uh, were overwhelmed by the fear of COVID and and that sort of thing. The one anecdotal case that I keep seeing and I see it pop up again and again is the case of this emergency room doctor in New York uh, when the pandemic first hit New York there. And I feel like a lot of people are using that as an example of um, the stress that healthcare workers are under and also... Uh, the fact that this pandemic is going to cause a rise in suicide, which I don't think the one necessarily leads to the other. And I'm not sure that either of those characterizations are accurate.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think there, there are a number of reasons why that case uh, came to light. And and again, uh, a, a tragic example. I think a big part of it is that um, one of the positive things that we've seen coming out of this very negative experience of COVID Um, is a support and appreciation for people who are doing the frontline work, um, from the people who've continued working in grocery stores and pharmacies and delivering food and supporting their neighbours to the frontline healthcare providers, uh, many of whom, in fact, are um, at risk or, or potentially putting themselves at risk Um, certainly uh, physically by being exposed to people who have been exposed to the virus. And of course, um, personal protective equipment um, can do a a great deal in terms of protecting uh, transmission, but there's always some risk involved. But also there are the uh, emotional risk to doing that work. Um, And I've heard examples of people working in, in emergency departments that are just overwhelmed Certainly, you can think of regions and countries that have been just uh, overrun by COVID and people working long, endless shifts, seeing people succumb to COVID, et cetera, et cetera, uh, can be overwhelming for people. One thing, though, that we always have to bear in mind is that suicide is is really never a one-to-one result from a particular experience or a particular situation, that there are a myriad of factors uh, that collectively um, play a role in in essentially working together in combination to potentially increase risk for suicide. So I I, I don't know the specific examples of, of that one emergency physician, and I'm not going to speculate, but just to say that we know that there are a variety of factors, psychological, possibly biological, social, familial. Uh, life events, etc., that all together can, it's sort of like throwing everything into a pot, stirring it up, and for some people, that then leads to increased risk for suicide. The nice thing, again, is that there are many opportunities everywhere along the way to hopefully short-circuit that increase in risk. I know I'm mixing metaphors here. <laughs> right? Um, but but also to, um, to engage people socially, interpersonally, in terms of healthcare. Um, to hopefully decrease risk. And it's tragic whenever um, that falls apart or whenever somebody succumbs, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as it was in this case. But but certainly it's it, it not just the case that COVID alone will lead to people killing themselves without a variety of additional factors playing a role. The other thing I, I will mention, and I, I hadn't said much about the, the biology of it, and clearly this is not my area of expertise, um, but we do know that COVID, um, like other uh, other viruses, other flus, can have an effect on the neurological system. So the fact that people are having uh, trouble smelling, tasting, uh, these are all examples of neurological involvement. And so it's also entirely possible that the impact of COVID on mental health operates in part uh, through neurological channels, which is also one of the big concerns about um, the later days, months, years down the road, even when we, uh, fingers crossed, have vaccines that work well, have antibodies that have been developed, et cetera, um, there's still some concern about people who have been infected down the road, making sure to take good care of themselves um, and making sure to reach out for supports and, and develop some of the uh, psychological and, and, and mental health um, coping resources that can be helpful, now
0: and down the road. And when you talk about reaching out for support, I think that it's also different for family members and friends. Uh, Let's say you have someone in your family, you have a friend who has a history of depression, and you're worried about them, but you can't physically go to their house and check in on them. You can't, uh, you know, connect the way that we once did. What would you recommend somebody do if somebody out there is listening who has a friend who has a family member that they're worried about? uh, How can they check in on that person? How can they help uh, find them some resources.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent point. And 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 I'll add without uh, sort of sort of throwing uh throwing additional uh, fuel on the fire that especially in, in and we're certainly seeing that in the US but in Canada as well when we hear horror stories about um officials going out on sort of uh safety checks and things going extremely negatively. Um at one point this was referred to as suicide by cop mm-hmm. um, but situations like that uh can also be frightening for family members and others who are concerned about a loved one to even know where do i turn and where do i go and what do i do that's the appropriate thing to help my loved one or check on them that couldn't possibly lead in in negative directions and and i will say that i've got uh, no end of uh respect for, uh, for people who work, uh, mobile crisis units, other units like that, who do these safety and wellness checks, and, and, and of course advocate for continued work together, uh, those teams together with other mental health providers to make sure that they're able to go on those checks, keeping themselves safe and keeping safe uh, the people who they're called to look into. So certainly I'd say for family members and others, community members concerned, um, do reach out. Try and contact your loved one, your friend, your community member by phone, by email, by text. I know the most frightening thing can be uh, or one of the most frightening things can be when you are concerned about somebody, when you've seen signs that they're possibly struggling, if they're sending out messages by social media, text, etc. Or if you know that they're struggling and you haven't heard for a while, you try and reach out to them and you can't connect with them. And the way that it typically works is somebody will try, they'll wait a while, they'll try again, they'll think, well, maybe the person's busy, I'll give them a little while, and then after a while, the time in between the texts or calls decreases, and then the person becomes exceptionally worried that something might have happened, a tragedy might have occurred, Uh, I've got to do something now. So certainly reaching out to, uh, to the authorities, dialing 911, reaching out to mobile crisis teams in your community, contacting Canadian Mental Health Association, asking for help, letting them know what the situation is, and asking for advice as to what to do uh, can all be very helpful, as well as other crisis services in your community. I know in many cases we might feel like, well, if they don't answer, I'm getting in the car, I'm going over there or getting a cab or whatever the situation is. Um, And, of course, in these days where there can be um, potential uh, danger associated with uh, going out to certain places, although we know that things have opened a lot more today than they have a few months ago. uh, So that's, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to people's own judgment as to potential risks involved in going out to visit somebody. Obviously, if if you're going to, make sure to take uh, all necessary precautions, wear a mask, etc. Try and physically distance as much as you can. Um, But again, I think today that's a little bit different than it would have been say back in April, where we really were, many of us at least, just sort of hunkering down at home and not going out. Uh, But certainly reaching out, reaching out to Uh, The person's neighbour might be a way also of doing that, their healthcare provider. So healthcare teams generally do have protocols in place for this sort of thing, certainly mental health teams or again, crisis teams. Um, So I I had mentioned, and I can provide it here, um, basically if you look online, you will be able to find local crisis services, uh, suicide prevention services, help services in your community. For people who aren't aware, um, there is a national uh, distress line that people can call. I can give the number now. It's through Crisis Services Canada. Sure. It's one 833 456 or they can text 45645. 4- 5- 6- 4- it had been uh, originally what was called the Canadian Distress Lines Network, and it's essentially a one-point access uh, for people who are uh, struggling with thoughts of suicide, at risk, or again, feel free to reach out if you're concerned about loved ones. Um, but, but again, otherwise, nine one one mobile crisis teams, which typically operate together with
0: uh, community police services, can be extremely important uh, and appropriate places to go. And that. You mentioned wellness checks and how they've uh, Mm -hmm. suddenly become a series of horror stories that you see in the media every now and then. uh, The police will respond. It goes badly. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it brings me, actually reminds me of something that I'm seeing more and more as well, right? That, and and I hate to (laughs) delve into politics here, but it has become Mm -hmm. sort of a political football. This idea that we have to reopen because people are going to start harming themselves if they remain cooped up too long if they remain unable to earn a living and this sort of thing and it strikes me that that I I feel like it misses the point I feel like what you're saying is we have to move the economy forward we have to reopen restaurants and shops so that people will get out and not feel like they're going to harm themselves but it sort of ignores the idea that we should probably create a strategy to prevent people from harming themselves, that we should have more mental health services available to those people, rather than uh, presuming that there is a root cause for it and removing that root cause.
1: Yeah, I I think we're being exposed to a number of things and there are a number of political issues and and pseudo-political issues out there. And and, and some of them, Um, very appropriate movements um, that sort of all get mixed together. So, yeah, the notion, and and I hadn't quite heard it put that way, that if we don't go out and open the economy, you know, it could force people into suicide or or something like that. Uh, But certainly people are becoming uh, or have been becoming uh, anxious and agitated, and especially for those who aren't able to, in income, whose jobs have disappeared, who are without income—that uh, can be ex- exceptionally stressful. I, I, I certainly understand that. Um, yeah, in in terms of the openings and all of that, obviously I'll leave it to the uh, to the public health directors and and the politicians to deal with that. Um, I, I I do have concern about how things will go, especially once the schools reopen. We've seen that elsewhere, um, potentially leading to spikes. Hopefully, that won't be the case. I know we've had. Um, relatively low numbers in Ontario uh, of late, and here's hoping that it remains that way. Um, but you're right. I think that we're we're mixing together together a number of issues, uh, very real economic concerns with very real public health concerns, and it, it it's hard to ask people to put one aside in deference to the other. Um, but at the end of the day, we we really can't be. Um, threatening ourselves or our communities by wanting to get out before we're ready. And of course, as things open, it it really behooves each of us to make choices for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our communities that don't put people at risk. And if we are going to go out, uh, be intelligent about that. Social distancing is still uh, considered to be highly effective wearing masks where it's not possible to socially distance or frankly, even when it is possible to do so, uh, will only help to uh, fight the spread of the infection. And the truth of the matter is if if things open or people get out there too quickly, end up getting infected or infecting others, um, that just makes things that much worse. And, and the truth is uh, in terms of one's health, and of course we know mental health is a part of health, uh, in terms of one's health, keeping oneself healthy, keeping oneself safe, it, it is really critical. And I could see things going so far in the other direction that if people get out too much, uh, get together too much, uh, those sorts of things, we see the rates going up. Uh, that will certainly have a negative impact on mental health, and could in fact have a negative impact on uh, on, on on people's self-care and and potentially exacerbate um, some of these issues. So. I think that being wise, doing what one can to just hang in there a little bit longer um, and and, and trying to find ways to deal with um, and and, and to handle the very real uh, challenges that people are experiencing, financial, social, psychological, uh, etc., are absolutely necessary.
0: Dr. Marnon Heisel is my guest today, expert in suicide in a Canadian context. We've been talking about the negative implications of COVID-19, but Dr. Heisel also wants to talk about the positive, as many do. The CPA has just wrapped up our annual convention, which was, of course, converted to an online virtual series by necessity. And one of the weeks of the convention was dedicated solely to studies on the pandemic. And it was truly incredible, the amount of research that was presented and that's been done in the last few months. So, how much of that research has Dr. Heisel seen? How much is he doing, and what does he think the impact will be down the road?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things, again, one of the, the positive things that's come out of this this negative situation is a proliferation of research. And, and certainly a lot of the early research was looking at either the epidemiologic spread of COVID um, public health models. Uh, everything from looking at numbers, uh, the distribution, bacteriology, virology, etc. But in addition, there's been a real movement um, in mental health uh, fields for mental health providers, looking at clinical intervention research, public health research, other sorts of research, specifically focusing on mental health and COVID. So there have been um, calls from the federal government, provincial governments, other groups, looking explicitly at um, mental health and COVID, including mental health responses. And one of the things, uh, you and I have been chatting briefly earlier about how one of the changes we've seen is the way that we connect with others, and that we've all essentially had to, or, or many of us who have had the ability, uh, to go online and to become more virtual. And one of the not necessarily virtuous, but virtual. Hopefully, both.
0: <laughs> one um, would imagine.
1: One, one would hope. Uh, yes. One would hope for sure. But but certainly one of the things that uh, COVID has done is given telehealth and telepsychology a shot in the arm. Um, so that many providers had been. Uh, again, there are always early adopters, but but many psychologists, I think it's probably fair to say, have been somewhat uh, cautious about providing online services, telephone services, except in in, in rare situations or sort of in-between sessions or that sort of thing. But certainly that's proliferated over the last number of months. And I think that even when all of this is behind us, and let's all hopefully look forward to the time when it is, um, those services will likely still continue to exist. Um, I think we realize that they've met an important need and filled an important gap, especially in a country that's as large and diverse, including geographically, as Canada is, Um, these fill some important gaps. Uh, Personally, my colleagues and I have been doing some research. um, Specifically, we've been offering groups for men who are struggling with the transition to retirement. Uh, We see it as an upstream or early intervention to prevent the onset of things like feelings of social isolation, loneliness, depression, hopelessness, even thoughts of suicide. And we've been doing that for a number of years um, to very positive outcomes. We, we published an article a few months ago, uh, looking at that showing reductions in thoughts of suicide, reduction in depression, enhancement of mental health, uh, well-being, social interactions associated with these groups. But of course, as we were offering a group that it started in November By March, uh, with COVID proliferating, we had to stop our in-person groups. And after getting uh, research ethics approval to do so, we moved our group online and continued meeting online. And it was interesting because it wasn't clear whether the group members would, would naturally take to that platform. And initially, when we discussed it when we were still meeting in person, my sense was that we probably wouldn't find people all that interested in doing so. Nevertheless, a few weeks in, as people were socially distancing, it became clear that this was something that was necessary and it became extremely helpful, a great way for people to connect, provide support for one another. And we saw even over a fairly short period of time, anxieties were increasing, a sense of disconnection from others were increasing, especially from family members. And so it seemed to meet an important need. So we were fortunate to get some internal research funding from the Lawson Research Institute here in London uh, to continue our groups online. We're, we're going to be starting another one in a few weeks. That'll be entirely online. And we're also looking to uh, expand out into care homes, like uh, retirement homes, assisted living facilities, uh, recognizing that many older adults in uh, care homes who live in those homes are, uh, again, either physically, socially isolated from others in facilities where they've had lockdowns, all the more so. Um, and given especially the early days um, of this pandemic, we've seen that it sort of disproportionately affected older people or when it would get into care homes, which just sort of run ragged. And so uh, the need is absolutely there to provide uh, mental health outreach, social support, interaction, uh, with, with older people living in these homes, as well as there's, uh, we, we'll likely see over the next few months a number of projects being funded, really across the gamut of mental health, looking at impact of COVID prevention, uh, mental health improvement, uh, enhancing well-being, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and I suspect that we will see the benefits of that for many years to come. And I also do expect to see in future funding competitions from the federal government and other groups, even those that aren't COVID specific in the mental health area, uh, we will see a lot more focus on telepsychology, distant healthcare, as well as the long-term impact of the pandemic and fears thereof. So uh, it should again, I do expect that we'll see a a real proliferation uh, in the research And as we've seen already, and and just a quick comment, I know that we have seen a lot of literature out there um, almost from the get-go. In part, researchers have also been at home or or socially distancing. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people have been able to do is take the time to write up a lot of the research that they've been working on. Um, Much of the early findings uh, or much of the early articles had been sort of um anticipating what might happen but more and more we're actually going to see data that have been collected uh being disseminated so uh we we will know a lot more and we'll know a lot more about the potential benefits of uh various online interventions um in in terms of their positive
0: impact on mental health and well-being for sure and uh, i've been talking to many many people who find all kinds of things being different with that sort of interaction online i have friends at the dementia society of ottawa and renfrew county here who mm-hmm. are running their uh, dementia support groups online and of course uh, you know social isolation is a huge factor for the mostly elderly people who they're uh, speaking with there's of course a younger onset group as well but they're very surprised at how much people have taken to it how well they've adapted to doing these programs online and uh, even the exercise programs are now online and they're, you know, people are doing it in their living rooms.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's, that's one of the nice things about it is that we, we, we are flexible, we are malleable, and uh, even you know, sometimes we, we healthcare providers think, oh, well, this would never work, or oh, I don't think that people would take to that, and, uh, and, and people do, and, and I think that, uh, that, that, that's a wonderful example of just how well things can work.
0: It is Suicide Prevention Day, September the 10th, and uh, you know, a lot of people are uh, worried, wondering, and uh, thinking about it uh, today and uh, in general, mostly because the pandemic is bringing up all kinds of mental health issues that uh, now are more out in the open than they have been before. So you, uh, you and I talked earlier and we talked about um, the importance of early intervention. Is that something that People can do on their own or is that something that psychologists think before this becomes something more serious I'm going to reach out to this patient and do this uh, this intervention at an earlier stage
1: well I, I think that's an excellent question and the truth is I would say yes to all of it uh, plus okay. um, so so generally speaking uh, as psychologists as clinical psychologists Uh, We we tend to be a bit more on the reactive side and in fact, you know among the health professions I think that we we do tend to be um, That way somewhat more we do tend to be very cautious risk averse, etc And and we typically our typical ways of doing things is to wait for clients to come to us rather than uh, Going out and looking for them and 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 for good reasons. certainly we don't chase down people but um, while there have always been great examples of this, I think that there is uh, the important opportunity, certainly in violence prevention, suicide prevention, working more along um, public health lines to look at outreach, community outreach, um, providing support, looking at earlier interventions or really even early prevention um, and again, certainly in, in, in mental health and, and in healthcare in general, uh, we, we've tended not to be as strong in terms of prevention or promotion of health, mental health, and well being as we are in terms of the reaction to people coming into hospital, into a clinic, into a, uh, a healthcare provider's office. Uh, but certainly in terms of issues like suicide, while the individual level um, crisis intervention, mental health support is is critical, is necessary, and that's really never going to change. Um, as we're looking and, and really needing to think about uh, more of a public health lens or a global lens, we do have to think about ways that we can promote mental health and well-being in people who are currently doing well and at very low risk for suicide, all the way up to people living in communities who are struggling and are at much higher risk for suicide. So I think that uh, as individuals, um, it's always in our best interest to do what we can to work on our own health and wellness and well-being. Um, And as a society and as providers, we also need to think about ways that we can really sort of move things upstream. Because if we only wait until people are on the brink, um, many people are not going to survive. And I think that the upstream outreach, community interaction approaches are, are absolutely essential for
0: that. Now, you mentioned communities that were more at risk than other communities. What what are some of those communities in Canada that are generally more at risk than the rest of us? Yeah,
1: well, I wasn't necessarily thinking of community in the geographic sense, although we do know that, uh, that suicide, at least deaths by suicide, are distributed differently geographically. Um, But I was thinking about groups or segments of the population who might have higher risk. And and typically, if we look at the epidemiology of suicide, we know that there are a number of groups who have historically been at higher risk. One that people tend not to think about uh, are older adults and older men in particular um, have the highest rates of suicide worldwide. That's something that people tend not to realize uh, we tend to think, looking at media reports and, and what we know or have heard or seen, we tend to think of adolescence. Um, and, and certainly, uh, adolescent suicide is a huge issue, and it's one that bears a continued uh, focus and attention. Um, however, it really is older adults, older men in particular, who have the highest rates of suicide. Um, among adolescents uh, in particular, um At at, uh, extremely high rates, we think of some uh, indigenous communities, some First Nations, Inuit, Métis communities, especially for young people 15 to 19, even up to 24, um, can have exceptionally high rates of suicide. Interestingly, that's not necessarily true across the board. Some tribes or some bands might have exceptionally high rates, and neighboring tribes or bands might have extremely low rates. Um, so it's important to be aware of uh, differences, regional variations, cultural variations as well. Certainly, uh, it's no surprise, uh, people struggling with uh, mental health problems, uh, substance misuse, has, have extremely high rates of suicide, as do people with chronic pain, uh, neurological conditions, and, and various other health care conditions. Uh, it's probably true to say that Just about any health issue, if sufficiently extreme, can increase risk for suicide thoughts, if not the behavior, if not death by suicide. Um, There's been uh, increasing focus in recent years on middle-aged men uh, also having high rates of suicide, um, as well as other populations, people who have been sexually abused um, and, and various other groups, including socially disadvantaged groups. So uh, right. we know that there are a variety of groups who are at high risk, but these, these are some examples of, of groups, or again, I use the term community, mm-hmm. um, who, who might have high risk.
0: And I know that, uh, you know, we've focused here in Canada on Indigenous youth and a suicide prevention strategy there. I know that we've done the same for farmers of late uh, mm-hmm. as a community that is at high risk Uh Absolutely. What do you know about those strategies, those prevention uh, strategies, and whether or not they're working?
1: So, those are in, in, in incredibly important uh, initiatives underway, um, some longer uh, existing or, or longer duration than others. And, uh, and I think that they're doing uh, good work, and I think that there's always uh, room for additional work to be done. Some of the additional strategies that have come out of late Um, that I'm a bit more familiar with personally are um, Canadian Forces and Veterans Affairs Canada put out a joint uh, suicide prevention strategy over the last couple of years. And I think one of the things that it's pointing to is a growing recognition of the issue, the problem of suicide among various groups, uh, organizations, communities, um, etc. And I think an increase in the Well, relative comfort, uh, because there's always a discomfort, but relative comfort in even talking about the issue. So many of us in the suicide prevention community for years have said, in many ways, we are like um, cancer care had been 30, 40, 50 years ago, where at one point people wouldn't even say cancer, it would only be whispered. Right. Right. Whereas now uh, there will be walks for cancer, for breast cancer awareness, et cetera, et cetera. With suicide, it's still somewhat more stigmatized, although more and more I think we're hearing people, uh, again, sort of bringing it out of the dark, talking more, or bringing it out of the shadows, talking about mental health issues, talking about suicide, and the need to be able to talk openly about suicide prevention, yet do so in a safe and
0: appropriate fashion. So uh, go ahead. Yeah. And and actually, that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I'm Mm. keenly aware that we are now having this conversation about suicide prevention uh, in this format, in a podcast format. And I come from a media background where the uh, rule of thumb was you don't report on a suicide. You don't, uh, you know, that doesn't make the news and we push that aside and i know that you're one of the people who wrote the guidelines for the media uh when it came to that here in canada and i'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about the balance between those things it's an important conversation that we need to have but we also shouldn't be uh, reporting on uh, methods and uh, outcomes when it comes to suicide in the community
1: exactly and, and you're absolutely right it's that balance so on the one hand between Uh, trying to educate the public, trying to provide information that's useful, that's appropriate, that's timely, as well as information on um, increasing awareness and understanding of mental health resources, how to reach out, where to get help, when to do so. Uh, But on the other hand, recognizing that there is something, and it's been referred to as a suicide contagion effect, for for sort of lack of a better term. Um, Other names have been given to it initially called the the Werther or Werther effect uh, based on a character in a Goethe novella. Um, But recognition, and and this is something that we've known for for decades at least, that reporting on specific cases, specific individuals, deaths by suicide, especially giving a lot of um, intimate information, can potentially lead to um, an increase in deaths by suicide um, especially by people of um, similar demographics, age, sex, uh, life experience, using similar methods or means. And this is why, I, I, I exactly right, um, many media outlets have said, no, this is this is sort of a no-go zone. We don't talk about these things because we recognize that we could inadvertently be increasing risk. But more so in, in recent years, there's been, uh, you know, a bit of a, a pushback saying, but how are we supposed to talk about this issue? How are we supposed to raise awareness if we can't talk about suicide? And this is where some of the recommendations or they've been called media guidelines have come out. And there have been a number that have been written over the last 20 years or so from the World Health Organization, American Association of Suicidology, Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention. And as you mentioned, most recently uh, a revised statement from the Canadian Psychiatric Association. So uh, uh, among them, as you said, absolutely important to talk about the issue um, To raise awareness of uh, potential risk factors, but also to situate it in a discussion of mental health and well-being and recognition that suicide is preventable, that services are available and that clearly more work needs to be done by all of us, but to let people know where they can reach out for help, where they can go. And and, and I'll share a number in just a a moment uh, for people looking to do so. but not dwelling on specifics of an individual's life, especially around specifics of means or methods used by people to die, because that can start taking the conversation in uh, certainly very uh, very dangerous directions and can potentially increase uh, risk for contagion. So, uh, if, it, if it's okay, why don't I, I just name uh, one number? Yes, one place please do. Go up there, struggling. Um, So this is uh, the number for Crisis Services Canada. So this is um, a service that developed out of a Canada-wide distress line network. Um, So essentially, across the country, people can dial this line, and that should connect you up with a local crisis intervention service. That number is 1-833-456-4566. So again, it's 1-833-4566. 456-4566, or people can text 45645, so again, that's text 45645. In addition, uh, if people want to reach out to their local Canadian Mental Health Association, that can be uh, highly appropriate. If you're concerned, imminently concerned about a loved one, neighbor, community member at risk. You can reach out and see if your community has a mobile crisis team. Often, uh, that would be mental health services together with local police or frontline providers who can go out and uh, and and check on somebody. Um, And you know, when when all else fails, or if you're absolutely uh, concerned about risk to yourself or others, uh, 911, dialing 911 or emergency services highly appropriate, or going to an emergency department uh, or other crisis uh, services in your community.
0: All right. And if you missed those numbers, uh, don't worry, we will put them in the show notes uh, so you can access them at any time uh, with this podcast. Now, you mentioned the means by which somebody takes their own life is one of the major things, if not the major thing, that news outlets should not report about. Now, I'm wondering if that connects to some of the studies uh, that I've read in the past about the means uh, for ending one's life being readily accessible is the major reason why it actually happens, right? I know that uh, there was a study in England, people uh, who were like Sylvia Plath killing themselves in ovens, and when they switched the gas from whatever gas source it was to a new one, that that was no longer possible, the suicide rate dropped dramatically and you know things like in the united states where there's more access to handguns that's the method that more people use is that part of the same thing is that why we don't report on the method by which somebody has done this
1: well i think that uh really the reason not to report on the method is that there has been uh literature showing that um there, there does tend to be a contagion effect, sometimes it's called a copycat effect, when specific details are given, uh, recognizing that members of the public um, listening to a show, watching a TV show, reading an article, uh, might be struggling with some of the same thoughts and feelings that the person who died uh, also had. And so if they potentially identify with that person and learn about a particular method Uh, that somebody used to end their life, um, that sort of increases the likelihood that they might now think about doing the same. Um, And and, and certainly thinking about media guidelines does fall broadly, uh, certainly within public health approaches to suicide prevention. Um, and, And another example of that, as you mentioned, is the notion of means restriction, that there are Uh, various means that people use, as we know, to end their lives, and some of them are more common in certain regions or certain points in time than others, and finding ways to make it harder for people to access those potentially life-threatening or potentially life-ending means at the moment that they are feeling at risk um, can be effective, or as a colleague of mine has put it, anything that sort of slows down That cascade of negative emotions, uh, anything that puts distance between the thought and potential action could be potentially life-saving. So finding a way to uh, impede or restrict access or lessen access to life-threatening means or mechanisms or methods um, could ultimately help that person um, over the precipice and get them through the high risk period um, till they get back to a point again where they're no longer in as imminent risk and, and, and a variety of approaches have been used. Uh, some of them by happenstance, uh, just sort of, they discovered that, uh, you know, that this then led to a reduction in suicide and others very, very deliberately. Um, but that is one of the, uh, one of, one of the challenges and it, and it, it for some people, it is more—it um, it is the thing that makes the difference between life and death. For others, it might not be the, the primary driver. Um, but one of the challenges, one of the issues, at least in terms of suicide prevention research, is that a lot of the suicide prevention services occur at the person-to-person level, like the psychologist sitting down with a client in their office providing support where when the client comes into the office they're feeling distressed, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling agitated, they might be contemplating suicide. By the end of the session they're feeling supported, they've had discussions, uh, troubleshooting, problem-solving some of their challenges, Uh, they've had an opportunity to vent, to be supported, to gain insight, maybe to learn about some other approaches that they might use when they're overwhelmed and they walk out of the office feeling much better than they did walking in. That may, in fact, have saved a life, um, and it's, again, critically important and absolutely necessary. The challenge, though, is being able to see large shifts in uh, deaths or lives saved and changes certainly at the level of a national suicide rate. So, it's, it's very hard to see that looking at the individual one by one level. It's much easier to see um, the potential impact of prevention um, initiatives at the larger levels and things that have a larger impact, um, certainly like the public health approaches you'd mentioned, um, restricting access to certain means, are easier to count in that regard. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: those have been some of the um, leading literature looking at suicide prevention where they've actually shown a prevention effect in part because they're looking at a large enough.
0: Now you mentioned a cascade of emotions and uh, Mm -hmm. the negative emotions that sort of build up and I presume that when a person walks into a psychologist's office or walks into a mental health professional's office they're pretty low on that scale uh, that cascade right they've reached a point where they feel like they have to reach out for help Is it possible for people to reach out earlier, uh, recognize a stage along that cascade uh, so that they might be able to uh, preventatively reach out to a mental health professional?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you you know, it it, it might actually be fortuitous or, or a very positive thing if somebody is experiencing sort of an increase in negative emotions and a sort of... Um, racing or building up in speed of, of anger, depression, hopelessness, fear, et cetera, um, if they happen to be in their therapist's office, that can be a very good thing because now they, you know, they can have some assistance in, in stopping that or slowing it down. Um, but certainly it, 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 it can be um, people who do reach out for help often do so when they're at a, a very low point. Um, And it can be a very difficult decision for people to make, and it's such an important one because it can be so helpful uh, in in terms of enhancing people's uh, psychological well-being and potentially saving lives. Uh, But I absolutely agree that I think for all of us, we can all do a better job at being aware of our uh, emotional well-being taking action to make sure that we try and reduce stress as much as is possible in our life and finding ways to develop uh, positive coping resources. Uh, Certainly in these days, we're recognizing more and more the importance of social interaction and connection. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean spending days and days with with people and loved ones and getting involved in groups and activities, although that can be wonderful if people are able to do that. Sometimes something as simple as a quick check-in just reaching out to somebody, letting them know that you're okay, checking in on somebody you're concerned about to see how they're doing, a phone call out of the blue, uh, that sort of thing can mean, uh, can mean a lot to people. And in fact, there's been uh, a literature showing that uh, telephone distress lines as well as telephone outreach to somebody uh, can be extremely helpful in terms of reducing feelings of depression, despair, and thoughts of suicide. But anything that we can do to uh, get out there earlier and prevent the onset of risk, so much the better. And I think this is this is one area where um, researchers, clinicians, other healthcare providers have been increasingly focusing in recent years. Um, and much more needs to be done in, in in that way. I think we've all learned with uh, with the the current pandemic uh, the the terms public health and Seeing public health approaches, um, our eyes have been opened more and more to to those approaches, uh, certainly to uh, contagion, virus transmission, that sort of thing. Um, In addition, um, mental health providers are more and more looking to public health approaches. Uh, And again, these tend to be earlier enhancing well-being um, rather than waiting until people are at extreme risk.
0: And do you think that because all of this is happening and all of these, you know, mental health providers are connecting in a different way, uh, that this might accelerate a national strategy on suicide prevention?
1: Well, I certainly hope so. And I know that uh, still for many mental health providers, um, that shift in format, either from in-person to online or from... Being uh, more on the receiving or reactive end, waiting for somebody to come in and responding rather than outreach to the community um, is still very new, and some people are still uh, not as comfortable with that. Um, But certainly anything that helps move along efforts to develop a Canada-wide suicide prevention strategy um, are, are very positive in my book. And and just to say, um, historically, and uh, people may or may not be aware of this, uh, Canada was sort of uh, right at the beginning, uh, or or there right at the beginning, of of developing uh, interest in national suicide prevention strategies. In fact, there was a meeting that uh, the WHO had, uh, eventually it became the UN together with the WHO, um, in Alberta in the 1990s, where... um, suicide prevention researchers, mental health uh, providers uh, locally uh, through the university, I believe University of Calgary, were essential in helping to set up that meeting, looking at the issue of suicide prevention and arguing that suicide prevention needs to be viewed both through public health and social justice lenses and not exclusively through mental health lens, although of course that's necessary too. And that seemed to sort of flip a switch And the UN and WHO, within the next couple of years, released a report calling for nations worldwide to develop suicide prevention strategies. And many nations have now done so, dozens if not more. Canada still doesn't have one. And I think part of the reason for that is that we always struggle between the federal and provincial governments recognizing that what we consider national, uh, for our government is considered uh, something that the federal government should be involved in. But of course, health care typically is provided and mandated at the provincial levels. What's nice to see, though, is that there are examples of health care occurring across the country that either bridge the provincial and the federal or where the federal government takes a role. And from my perspective, as as, as a non-politician, uh, <laughs> I'm less concerned about some of those divisions between municipal, regional, provincial, and federal, and simply say, as Canadians, this is something that we need. We do see that worldwide. There have been uh, wonderful programs that have come about uh, essentially being uh, encouraged or, or taking as a spark a national strategy for suicide prevention, and that can involve things like community outreach, mental health promotion, health promotion, promoting social support, uh, research aims, um, better um, collection of data and understanding of uh, factors, regional uh, across different demographic groups associated with the onset or worsening of risk, and on the positive side, prevention or uh, alleviation of risk. So I'm still a big believer that Canada needs a national suicide prevention strategy, Um, and my colleagues and I, who have been working in this field for for many years, uh, I I think are always happy to make ourselves available um, to assist with that. But I think that that that's still something that we are lacking in this country, and
0: it's something that we absolutely
1: need, in my opinion.
0: Well, here's hoping that the Government of Canada is listening to this right now, and Dr. Heisel is available along with all of his colleagues to uh, (laughs) help you out with that national strategy, uh, if you are. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I will say that there's a lot of excellent work being done uh, in Canadian municipalities, regions, provinces, and at the federal government level in terms of suicide prevention, raising awareness, raising understanding collecting data and developing interventions, and uh, certainly kudos go out to all of those who are involved and to all community members from the grassroots all the way up um, doing that work. It's incredibly important work. It's incredibly difficult work. Uh, It can be very satisfying and it's absolutely necessary.
0: Well, I will say that I I think, you know, I've noticed that it's become more a part of the national conversation uh, over the years Many, many years ago, I used to work in radio, and I was asked to host a golf tournament for uh, the Ottawa chapter of Suicide Prevention Canada. Okay. And I thought, okay, you know, that it sounds like a very big organization, and uh, I went to host this golf tournament, and they had it at uh, the absolute cheapest golf course in Ottawa. It was, you, you couldn't even drive a cart on it, because it was like driving on the surface <laughs> of the moon. It was all rocks and everything. And... Okay. Uh, you know, it turns out it was just an organization of about three or four people, and yeah. that's who was doing it here in Ottawa, and they raised a bunch of money with this uh, one golf tournament, and that kept them going for a year, but they were basically volunteers, and so that yeah. was maybe more than a decade ago, maybe a bit, maybe 10 years ago, and now yeah. uh, they're a much, much bigger organization, they're much more robust, and they get out there in the community, and I'm seeing their messages uh, posted all the time, so... I think the conversation is moving in the right direction, and uh, you're a big part of that. And thank you for having the conversation with me.
1: Ab- absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I will say that, yeah, suicide prevention resources and organizations have been chronically underfunded, or or in many cases simply unfunded. And uh, you know, my thanks go out to all of the wonderful people who have been working for decades tirelessly as we say, off the edge of their desks or in some cases even without a desk to make sure that uh, this does become part of the national conversation and national conscience and that uh, more is done. And it's, it's wonderful to see that uh, that message is being taken up and that uh, that funds are starting to uh, support these efforts, and I think all the more so. I, I'll just say when I've had conversations with my colleagues in the States and they've talked about... Uh, the, the limited budget they've had for their work, and I've let them know what uh, the, the Canadian Association or other Canadian agencies have had. They've said, well, just don't, don't let our board know about that because they'll know that we're, we're relatively rich in comparison. Well, we, <laughs> we can all be richer in that regard. And I think ultimately that's what suicide prevention is about, enriching our lives and making sure that, uh, that our community members, loved ones, friends, and families are still around to be able to enjoy it and living uh, happy, meaningful, and fulfilling
0: lives. I think that's wonderful. And thank you for uh, making ours a little bit more fulfilling by joining me here today, Dr. Marnon Heisel, clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Epidemiology at Western University. You've said that thank twice now. Much. Did I get that right?
1: You got it. All right.
0: You got it. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And uh, the resources that Dr. Heisel mentioned, you can find them in the show notes to this podcast episode.